If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give him a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Vice President Aaron Burr. He'll be answering our call sometime in the mid to early 1830s, near the end of his life. Although he reached 80 years of age, his life had been a steady spiral downward since fatally shooting Alexander Hamilton approximately 30 years prior. If you've seen the Broadway show Hamilton, your impression of Burr might be that of an unprincipled coward who can't make up his mind. But if that were so, why did this coward risk his life to recover his fallen general in the Battle of Quebec? Why did George Washington and other high-ranking military decision-makers send him to Valley Forge to bring discipline and leadership to men at the edge of mutiny? If he is unprincipled, why did he stand so firmly for the rights for those that were enslaved, the Native Americans, and the frontiersmen to the West who were being ignored by the fledgling American government? Why did he break custom to ensure his daughter received the best education, enabling her to speak several languages by the age of 10? Prior to the Hamilton Broadway show, most people knew nothing about Aaron Burr. Now we know something, and after you listen, you're going to know his proof that Hamilton shot first with the intent to kill. But even that will be nothing compared to the bombshell he drops on you at the end of this episode about his plans for Mexico. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and lawyers everywhere, I give you Aaron Burr. Hello. Hello. Vice President Burr, I am so honored to speak with you today. Sir, my name is Tony Dean, and I'm calling you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding in your hand is called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were standing six feet from one another. It also allows me to share this recording of our conversation with people around the world, which I think is super important because after your duel with Alexander Hamilton, I'm afraid that many of your good deeds have been unfairly ignored or forgotten. And in our current time, a recent and very popular Broadway show has only made that worse. So, sir, I was hoping that I could ask you some questions and, and possibly correct the record. But before I do, I know this is a very strange introduction, and I was wondering if I can answer any questions that you might have first. Well, young man, you make reference to some concepts that I don't know what they mean. I don't know what a Broadway show is. I don't. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go I, ahead. I don't know what a, a smartphone is at all. So you're, you're going to have to help me, young man. So I'd be glad to answer your questions, but you have to help me out. No, no problem. Well, first of all, the, the smartphone, the device that you're holding, is something that we all use in this time in the 21st century to communicate through the air. And sir, if you don't understand how it works, believe me, none of us do either. So don't, don't feel bad about that. For, but for this moment, it allows us to communicate. And a Broadway show is actually actors get on a stage and, and do a presentation. And in our time, there is this extremely, maybe the most popular show of all time. It happens in New York that is about the duel 
between you and Alexander Hamilton, which I think you would agree was a pivotal moment in your life. Yes, I'm sorry that my friend Alexander Hamilton, whom I shot, I'm sorry it had to come to that, but I gave him every opportunity to avoid the interview, as we call duels. And did he you did call not. a duel an interview in that time? Yes. I, did, uh, I didn't know that. And I want to tell you that for 15 long years, my former friend, Alexander Hamilton, did everything he could in his power to derail my political career, to deny me office and elections, and insult me. And under the Code Duello, which originated in Europe and came to the United States among gentlemen, if I had not issued the challenge to a duel, I would have been posted. I don't know if you know what that means. I don't. Please explain. In those days, among aristocrats in our early country, if the public became aware that an aristocratic man, one of the social elite, sure. was being maliciously insulted, not by uh, any person, but by a fellow aristocrat, a landowner, and if you did not call him out on it, you would be deemed to be a, a coward, and people in the public, citizens, would put posters up on trees wow. saying that you must be a coward because you didn't issue a challenge to a duel. And we called that posting. Incredible. So there would actually be pictures or some claim of you being a coward that would be posted on trees and, and signs or, or something like that, like yes. stating that you were a coward because you were allowing him to assault your character? Yes, and there were some instances where some of my contemporaries were so opposed to dueling that they absolutely refused to engage in a duel. There were a few, and the public generally knew who they were, and they sort of got a pass, and they might not be posted, but if the public didn't know that that aristocrat held that principled moralistic opinion that dueling was evil and just terrible, you would be posted. So my question about that would be, I mean, obviously you and Hamilton, as you were saying, were, were friends early in life. And my understanding is that you even worked together. If in fact there was this fear of being posted and you knew that your, your reputation was being attacked, why wait 15 years to act upon it? Yes, that's a good question. Over those 15 years, I often thought of challenging or of writing to Alexander Hamilton through our mutual friends that would carry the letters. You had the letters delivered in person, like by oh. horseback. You couldn't trust the mail system. People would read your letters knowing who was sending them. And so, <laughs> Is that right? Yes, they would just open the letter and read it and then start gossiping and spreading 
the news. So anyway, over those 15 years, and of course it started out, the insults were small and then they grew and Hamilton was angry that I had defeated his father-in-law, General Schuyler, for the U.S. Senate. Mm-hmm. He re- that really made Alexander mad because he was a social climber. He wanted his father-in-law to be the U.S. Senator from New York. Anyway, I held my tongue, used discretion, and I just complained to friends. But then I didn't get posted. I guess the public didn't fully realize what Hamilton was doing to me, often behind the scenes, by the way, until it got to the point uh, during that dinner party in Albany that was carried in the Albany, New York newspaper, reporting what Alexander Hamilton had said to the dinner guests about me, that he had a Tell me about that. Well, according to the newspaper article that was shown me, of course, one or more of the men at uh, Dr. Cooper's dinner party were saying negative things about me. And Alexander Hamilton piped up and said, well, you know, I have an even more despicable opinion of Aaron Burr than what you're expressing. Wow. And that's what made the news. And I sent the first of about 10 rounds of letters to Alexander Hamilton, and I asked him, to explain to me that if, in fact, he did say that, what did he mean by an even more despicable opinion? What was that opinion? And he sent a letter back through his intermediary saying, well, you know, Aaron, the word despicable is subject to many different definitions. So I felt that that was evading the question. So I wrote him back that I want to know what you meant by uh, even more despicable. And this went on for several more rounds of letters, and he finally said that he wasn't going to comment any further. And so I wrote him a letter and said, i tell you what, now we're at the point where you must send me a letter and make it public apologizing for all the bad things that you've done to me in the past 15 years. I want a public apology. Wow, that's a big ask. That's a, yes, and I, I received no response to that. And so after a reasonable amount of time of waiting, I issued the challenge to the interview. Under oh. the terms of the Code Duello, everything under the Code Duello lays out the protocol for engaging in a duel. Can you tell me a little bit about that, the Code Duella? Yes. The person challenged here, Alexander Hamilton, gets to choose and supply the weapons. He supplied the Wagden pistols built in England that had been used in his family before in duels, including at Weehawken, such as his son, Philip, used them and died. So the challenger supplies the weapons and gets to choose which position to face, meaning physically, once you're at the dueling site. And each side has a second, which is someone that accompanies you. And then we had the uh, surgeon, Dr. David Hosick, a friend of Hamilton, 
there in case anyone got hurt, which they did. And then there were the oarsmen that rowed the boats. We arrived in separate boats from New York City at about 6 a.m. on July the 11th, 1804. Then the position of muskets, according to the Code de Willow, were skyward. Uh, you were 10 paces from each other. And when you turned around to face your opponent, each of us held the musket directly pointed up at the sky, not well, from this your... Is, this is con- yeah, this is confusing because I think a lot of people in our time think that you started with the muskets down at your waist and then you would raise them to fire. But what you're saying is, is that, per the code, you started with the pistol, pistol up in the air and then you came down to fire. Is that correct? Correct, 100%. Elsewhere in the country, out in the frontier, men may have done pistol fights, bringing the gun up from the hip, but but not in uh, duels. And so, and you would face your opponent in the duel with as small a part of your body as possible, so as to lessen the chance of them hitting your body. So in other words, you would not be frontal with each other. You would be by a silhouette. Yeah. And um, so 25 years after the duel, when I had returned to the United States from four years of living in Europe, um, I had a young friend who wanted me to show him where the duel had occurred. And I did go there with him. No one else knew and I showed them the dueling grounds, which were more or less the same as they had been. And I explained to him, as I had explained to others after the, right after the duel, that Alexander Hamilton fired a shot at me first. I felt the whiz of the, the ball, the ammunition, go past me and hit a twig on a tree above my head. Well, now that's interesting. So first of all, you're absolutely certain that Hamilton fired first. Yes. Okay. And the reason I say that that is interesting, so if you felt the wind of the musket ball and there was a branch that fell above you, that means that Hamilton was pointing his gun in the air and then was coming down to fire and then did in fact fire before you did, but was close enough so the musket ball just hit you. Now, I want to give you some information that you couldn't possibly have. These pistols still exist and were examined by a museum that's called the Smithsonian. I don't know if it existed in your time. And so those pistols still exist. They found when they did their research that these pistols had been adjusted so that normally it would take 10 pounds of pressure to fire them, that they were adjusted where they had a hair trigger where you basically just tap them and they were fired instantly. And some people have said that when the pistol was going to be fired, that it was fired, that Hamilton had fired earlier than he had expected because he had either forgotten or didn't know or, or, you know, the trigger just required such a a light amount of pressure that he fired a little bit earlier than he intended. And so perhaps where a lot of the stories that we, that people hear that are maybe uneducated on the topic would think that he wasn't intending to fire, maybe he was coming down and hit the trigger just a little too soon, but was absolutely intending to fire at you. Do you think that he was going to fire at you? 
Oh, yes. There was no indication that it was anything other than a serious life-and-death duel. You don't go out there with those huge muskets and not expect the other person to shoot. Each one is going to try to shoot the other. This was serious business, and I wondered why, or not why, but how General Hamilton shot at me so fast, because when I shot my bullet, I leveled the gun slowly. I was not in a rush. The muskets were very inaccurate. It took a lot of pull to pull the trigger of those muskets, and I... Mm -hmm. I was very familiar with guns, so was General Hamilton. He was an artillery commander at the Battle of Yorktown right? and elsewhere. We both were very proficient in weapons and guns, muskets. But I squeezed off a true round, and it hit him in the abdomen. And he went down, of course, but I, I wondered why or how he shot at me so fast. I knew that he was intending to hit me because of the, what I said about the bullet hitting, going, I heard the whizzing, and, and then I saw and heard the twig on the tree behind me snap, and that branch and tree were found by our seconds the next day. So this that is, actually makes a lot of sense then, doesn't it? Yeah, we, I reported that right away about that branch and the tr twig. So, so what I don't, happened next? Were you, were, you, were you arrested? Did you rush to his side? What happened next? At first, I started as a reflex to rush to the aid of Alexander Hamilton because I could see that he was badly hurt. And my second prevented me from reaching him and ushered me away quickly to my boat. None of the oarsmen on either boat saw the event because no one wanted to be a witness to whatever happened. Don't forget that dueling was illegal in both New York and New Jersey. I ended up getting charged criminally in both jurisdictions, in New York for planning the duel or agreeing to it, and then in New Jersey for doing it. And so there were warrants put out for my arrest as I was vice president. But what I, what I did is I was rowed back to New York City, Richmond Hill, my estate. Well, before, before we go there, as you're talking about how your first instinct was to rush to help Alexander Hamilton, that seems a little strange to me. And the reason I say is because this guy had been destroying your reputation for 15 years up yes. until the point where you guys spent, I'm, I'm assuming those letters back and forth, those probably took months, I, I'm guessing, to go back and forth. And, I, and all of this boils to a head where we get to a point where two extraordinary men are, are pointing guns, threatening to end each other's life. And your first reaction is, I have to help him. That seems strange to me. Like, what, yes. were, you, what were you thinking in that moment? Well, the moment just grabbed a hold of me once I saw him down and clutching his stomach area. I had been in battle many, many times, but still, now it was, oh my God, this is just so, so sad. That was my instinct to rush up to help him. Sad that it had come to this? Yes. 
So that's all I can tell you is that that was my first instinct. I had had a similar, not similar, but a a roughly similar situation during the Battle of Quebec when I was 19. Yeah, this is what I was going to ask you about. Before you talk about this, I want to preface this a little bit because the impression that a lot of people have in this time, and this, this could be infuriating, sir, which is why I'm so happy to have this conversation, but the impression that a lot of people have in this time is that you were a person that had difficulty picking a position or making up your mind. And some people might even see you as a coward because the story that they're aware of of the duel is that Hamilton shoots straight in the air and doesn't even threaten you, which obviously we know is now not true. And then you just, you know, shoot him dead on the spot, even though you're really not threatened. And so I've read quite a bit about you and I find no cowardice, nothing that I would call cowardice in your life. And I think what you're about to talk about right now, I'd love to hear this is about when you and General uh, Benedict Arnold went to the Battle of Quebec and what happened there. I would love, is that the story you're going to tell me? Yes. I would love to hear that. Well, during that battle, which was terrible, it was a massacre. Uh, the British just destroyed us. In Quebec? Yes. Our general, Richard Montgomery, was shot and killed during the battle, and I tried to move his body to safety. It was in the winter, and his body was too heavy. I couldn't move him. So I had to take my remaining men and retreat without the body of our general. Although, to the British credit, years later, the British returned the body. They somehow kept it and kept it from spoiling, I guess you might say, and returned it. His body is, I think, was buried in Kingston, New York. But during that battle, I had an opponent who, when I went to Europe, I, I ran into him, Scotland, and we recognized each other, and we made up and became friends, even though we had been trying to kill each other. So, Who was that? Well, it's not a name that anyone knows. It's just one of the British soldiers. Oh, I see. Okay. And so things happen. You don't know how you're going to react. In this case, the duel, when the other opponent, Alexander Hamilton, goes down, you don't know what your instinct is going to do. And you don't know if you, decades later, run into a former opponent on the battlefield and run into him in a safe environment, whether or not you're going to shake his hand and become friends. So those are strange things that happen. I suppose in these high-level games of war and politics, one day a friend is an enemy, and that probably goes back and forth throughout the process. Yes, and even General Washington, one of the British soldiers I learned later, had a clean shot of him, could have killed him during one of the battles and chose not to. He just couldn't kill a general of the opposing side. So there are a lot of unusual things that do happen in battle, good and bad. When you went to get Montgomery's, General Montgomery's body, before that you were fighting with General Benedict Arnold together in Quebec. Is that correct? Or you were on an expedition that direction? Yes, there were two expeditions that our Patriot forces 
joined in together to advance to Quebec. And I was in the one led by General, General Benedict Arnold. And is that the one where you guys had the, where you ran out of food or something? I know a little bit of the story. Can you tell me about that? Yes, it was horrible. A lot of my friends told me not to go on the expedition to Quebec. They said, you're a little guy, you're only five feet five inches tall, you don't have any training in battle, and you're not going to come back alive. You're 19. Don't go. In 19. Hmm. And so, and you, you know, you've been a student, a bookish student all your life. What are you doing going through the wilderness to Canada? But I went anyway, and we quickly ran out of food. We, we had to go through the most dense forests that you can imagine and mountains. And we started out at Newburyport, Massachusetts, which is right below New Hampshire, and marched through all the rural parts of New Hampshire. And then the worst part was going through Maine, and we didn't have any food. And there was a, a dead dog that someone had left on a tree, and we had to eat that. And then we had to oh actually eat our shoe leather. It was that or starve. And so we, on a few occasions, we had to eat the leather of our shoes. And, of course, we had to oh. find other shoes to be the substitute to wear. So there was terrible starvation. People have no idea what it was like. And there were wild animals and... And then we get to Quebec, and there's this huge walled city that we had to repel to climb over. It was, it was just horrible. Gosh, that, and, is, that is incredible. Okay, so you just raised another question that I have. When you were saying that friends were asking you why you would go do this, and you were going to get killed. Well, so my understanding is that you got into what we now call Princeton University, which I think in your time was the University of New Jersey. College of New Jersey. College of New Jersey, okay. Well, they now call that Princeton. And my, my understanding is you got into that when you were 13, and then you graduated three or four years later. Yeah, um, at 16. Yep, and then continued and did extremely well. You were... And, I mean, were you a good student? Oh, I was a very good student. Um, I, when I was admitted, they had rejected me the first time I applied because I was too young and too small. I looked like a little kid. And But when they did <laughs> admit me at 13, they admitted me as a sophomore. Because of my oh. tr- uh, very good academic schooling, they brought me in as a sophomore. And so that's how I graduated in three years instead of four. So was it common for 13-year-olds to start college? No. It was almost unheard of to my knowledge. And one of my classmates was James Madison, and he later really insulted me by when I went to Europe for four years, he would not issue me a passport to come back to the United States as the War of 1812 was about to break out. Uh, He didn't want me back United States. We'll come back to that in a moment. I understand that Madison wouldn't made it hard for you to come back into the country later on, but Madison was in your, he was one of your classmates. Were you guys close? Oh, yes. Yes. Where did things go wrong with Madison? I don't know. It's similar to being betrayed by Alexander Hamilton. And don't forget that I'm the person who introduced 
James Madison, at his own request, to a very um, beautiful widow in Philadelphia named Dolly Payne. Madison was too shy to introduce himself to her, so he had me arrange a meeting with her, and then we married six months later. And Madison still, was too shy to introduce himself to a woman that he was interested in? Yes. And so I did the introduction. They got along very well, and they married after six months. They stayed together. And then when I was in Europe, after being found not guilty of terrible treason charge brought against me by Thomas Jefferson, I was considered a hot potato. And James Madison and some others didn't want me back in the United States. They were very happy I was in Europe, and they wanted me to stay there. So he rejected my requests and my daughter Theodosia's requests by letter to issue me a passport. So I had to come back under an assumed name, Monsieur Arnaud, A-R-N-O-T. And I was able to find a sloop that brought me from England to Newburyport and then Boston. The British were about to blockade any ship coming into the United States on the Atlantic seaboard. And so time was of the essence. I, and I, w I wanted to come back to the United States, and I, it was, I was desperate to get back in by time. And I, I just barely made it back. Gosh, that's incredible. How long were you in Europe? Four years, from 1808 to 1812. Okay, so, so this is actually well after the, the Revolution. Why are the British trying to block the port? Well, relations between Britain and the United States uh, again soured for various reasons, and so they were going to go to war. During the, the War of 1812, the British burned down Washington, D.C., and so, so, yeah, all was not forgiven after the two countries reached a, a ceasefire after the Battle of Yorktown. The tensions flared up again, and Madison was president. And Madison refused to let you come back to the country and decided he just wanted to leave you there. You know, Vice President Burr, by the way, how do you prefer to be addressed? Do you prefer to be called Mr. Burr or Vice President Burr? Or? I prefer to be called Colonel Burr. Colonel Burr, okay. Thank you, thank you for telling me. So when I look at your life, it, it appears to me that your life made a huge arc. I mean, you started out, in my opinion, from what I understand, from a very difficult place, and then you excelled very rapidly through both politics and business and law and education. And then about the time when Hamilton and, and that duel took place, that things pretty rapidly went the other direction. Where are you right now? And, and can, do you mind sharing your age and the year? I'm now 77 years plus. I'm in New York City. Mm -hmm. I've started to have some medical problems. I've fallen down a few times and had some partial paralysis on one occasion, but I recovered from it. And, so and your health is, is not so great right now. That's right. And I'm living in a a boarding house in, in New York and run by a Miss Jane McManus and I only have a few friends left and I'm running out of money and my well, yeah, marriage ahead. falling apart. Well, my that's life. the reason I ask because you are, I mean, your life started, uh, in my opinion, I mean, this amazing life and all these these things that you've done as far as the creation and the foundation of, of you know, of our country. And it seems like it started 
about as difficult as maybe it, it is right now, unfortunately. My understanding is, is that by the time you were two years old, all the people that you loved, they all died over the first couple of years of your life. Is that, is that correct? Yes. When I was, by the time I was three, I had lost both of my parents, the Reverend Aaron Burr, who moved to school from Elizabethtown, New Jersey, to Princeton, New Jersey. So my parents died, and then my grandparents died, and my sister Sally and I had to go live with families in Philadelphia, the Biddles and other families that took care of us, took us in. Now, the Biddles and these other families, they weren't, they weren't relatives, were they? No, they were close friends. The Biddles were bankers. As a matter of fact, after the duel, I had to leave my home in New York City very quickly because I knew that I was going to be criminally charged. I had to get out of there. And the first place I went was Charles Biddle's home in Philadelphia, and he took me in, and I stayed there a few days and then made my way down to South Carolina, to Charleston, where my daughter was married to Governor Joseph Alston. But I was allowed to come back to Washington, D.C. to preside over the U.S. Senate because I was vice president. I had safe passage where I could not be arrested on the warrants as I was coming into the city or leaving. I had immunity as long as I was attending to official business of presiding over the U.S. Senate, which I did. And you say that my life fell apart after the duel. It did partially, and it, and it certainly did. I did suffer from it very significantly in all kinds of ways. Reputation, my political career was over. Mobs in Baltimore and Richmond wanted to lynch me. They tried to find me. I had to live under assumed names. They were trying to hang me, wow. string me up, especially in Baltimore. And that plus my creditors, I, I always owed money to people. I unfortunately was not good at handling money, and I entertained a lot at Richmond Hill, my estate. And I owed a lot of people. And in those days, they put you in debtor's prison. That was a serious thing to be in arrears on debts. So I left for Europe. But so that's why people, when I read about people like running from their creditors, at this time, there is no debtor's prison. You could have an unlimited amount of debt, and you can actually file to have it released, and there's no consequence. But back wow. then, you, yeah, back then you'd, actually, you'd, go to, you'd go to prison. Oh, you would definitely could go to prison. Debtor's prison was a very, very common penalty. And so I did preside over the Senate because don't forget that President Jefferson, who I didn't get along with at all, and he wouldn't speak to me as I was vice president. He wouldn't let me in to the executive quarters and allowed me no patronage or appointments of anyone. He cut me off totally. He was trying to pack the Supreme Court by getting rid of Federalists on the Supreme Court. And so unjustifiably, he impeached. He had Samuel Chase of Maryland, a, a Federalist Justice of the Supreme Court, impeached, meaning he had charges filed against them. And I presided over the trial, the impeachment trial. And I did so in a fair manner where the justice got due process of law and all his rights were observed. And I was largely acclaimed, if I may say so, 
for the way that I presided over that trial, but it infuriated President Thomas Jefferson, especially when oh. Chase, Chase was found not guilty. Was and that so you, where things started to go south with Jefferson? Because you and Jefferson, did you always not get along? No. What happened was the big thing that happened was that Jefferson needed me to deliver the New York state vote for him. Right. Because normally New York delegates would vote for a federalist or someone that lived up north and not a southerner. And so by having me as his running mate, Jefferson was able to get the New York vote. In other words, it was a crafty move on his part. And uh, what happened was, in those days, you didn't run as a ticket. Whoever got the most votes became president, and whoever got the second most votes, no matter which party, became vice president. And so we tied. We had the same number of votes for the first 35 ballots, and the tie did not get broken. It was dead even in the election of 1800 for president. And the more I th thought about it, the more I thought, well, gee, that would be pretty good to be president. So Jefferson was mad at me because I had supposedly was just going to be his running mate, and then I tried to actually become president. And oh. I, I, could, I can see where he would get very angry. And so that was the main reason that he despised me and cut me off. Finally, what happened was Alexander Hamilton was able to get James Bayard of Delaware on the 35th or 36th ballot to change his vote from me to Jefferson. And that broke the tie, and Jefferson became president. And Jefferson then, as a favor, gave the port of Wilmington, Delaware, patronage to Bayard. And so that was another source of what I said was Hamilton tried everything he could over 15 years to destroy my political career. My goodness. So when you were vice president, you had no say in any of the political matters. You, I mean, you were like a piece of furniture. That's what, that's what it that's sounds like correct. you're telling me. That's correct. So that that's had to be infuriating. It was. You know, during the treason trial, that was presided over by Chief Justice Marshall of the U.S. Supreme Court. And you're talking about the treason trial, treason trial after you came back from Europe, is that right? No. So, so what happened was, as vice president, I became a fugitive. And sure enough, the indictment <laughs> came out against me from New Jersey and New York. And I was a wanted man. I was vice president still. So I headed down south. And I was greeted as a hero because in those days, the outlying territories in the southern part of the United States, they liked dueling. They thought it was very appropriate. And Oh, that was legal in, in different parts of the country. It was, like in, at a large field, A-L-L-A-R-D field in New Orleans. You had to make an appointment to get it. <laughs> you, you had, it was so, there were so many people dueling. <laughs> had to make an appointment. This was a different time. And the aristocratic men, the elites, they had terrible tempers. They didn't allow anything to be done to them or insulting them. Oh. The worst was in Mississippi. If you looked at an aristocratic man cross-eyed, you could be challenged to a duel. And, um, I have this visual representation in my head of uh, a secretary you know, with a ledger. 
and he's just taking appointments. And you got these two people that are furious with each other. And the one says, that's it. I'm furious with you. You looked at me wrong. And the other one says, fine, we're going to duel. How does next week at 4.30 sound? <laughs> so the frontiersmen that I visited during the expedition with General James Wilkinson, who, of course, later betrayed me, they didn't like Alexander Hamilton. They considered him a dandy and an elitist and not a friend of the working people or working class, and they liked me. And so I found willing audiences down there, and I was going to invade Mexico with General James Wilkinson, who was the head of the entire U.S. Army, if and only if the United States declared war on Spain, which we were okay. thinking... Okay, hold on. We're... I feel like I feel like we're getting way ahead here. I feel like we just went okay. through from you being a fugitive to now you're going to invade Mexico. I feel like there was something that happened in between there. What what year are we talking about where you're going to invade Mexico? 1806, 1807. Okay, so a few years after your presidency, and then you went. I see. Then you that that is when you went into you went out west into the wilderness. And your plan was to gather troops to invade Mexico? Can you explain that? Well, the loyalties of the Western territories, and of course Western then meant Kentucky, Ohio, New Orleans. You're talking about the land west of the original 13 colonies. Yes. And even some of the areas that Jefferson bought from France, I mean from Spain, the, the, the Louisiana Purchase, some of those newly acquired lands and citizens, they weren't very happy with the central government in Washington, D.C. They were not mm -hmm. getting any attention paid to their needs, meaning their financial needs or anything. And so they were disgruntled. And General Wilkinson and I were listening to their complaints. And there were many, many other expeditions of a similar nature. It wasn't just mine or ours. And those were called filibusters in those days. Those expeditions were called filibusters. A filibuster so, now is nothing to do with an expedition. It's where a bunch of politicians stand in a room and just talk and talk and talk and they never stop talking. Yes, and so some associates and I purchased some 15,000 acres in northeastern Texas in an area that we wanted to inhabit or colonize with people, and it was in an area that was guaranteed to be slave-free. Now, I want to explain that. The reason it was slave-free was that the land was not compatible with growing cotton. It wasn't the type of soil where you could grow cotton. So we didn't need to worry about Southerners, planters, coming in, trying to bring enslaved people there. I was always against slavery, you know. Uh, I don't know if you yeah, know that. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't about the land being a choice that it was slave-free. It was just unworkable land. Correct. And don't forget... Wow. Alexander Hamilton and I were still friendly, and of course that term friendship sort of was a continuum, a downhill continuum. But when he and I were, let's say, working together more, uh, we both were members of the New York Manumission Society that he founded, and that was a group that was formed to get slavery abolished in the state of New York. 
And when I was attorney general and a member of the uh, assembly, which is the state legislature, I introduced a bill to abolish slavery, but it was considered too fast, meaning my bill would have abolished it immediately and totally. And they wanted to have a more gradual approach. So 14 years later, I was able to introduce another bill. And this time it passed and slavery was declared illegal in New York. Wow. Uh, So you're just a little ahead of your time. Yes. And that's uh, why I said after the battle of at the Alamo that came to my attention that we lost in Texas, I was right. What I was accused of doing 30 years ago in the southwestern territories as being treason now is seen as patriotic because the Battle of the Alamo was our attempt to take Texas from Mexico. Which brings us back to where you said I was going to invade Mexico. You were trying to move west, and, and you thought that we were eventually going to have to take over that land, and that's what you were trying to get, is get a hold of that land. Yes, and I wasn't going to do it unless and until the new country of the United States declared war against Spain, but we never did get to that point, so I never invaded. But Jefferson conspired with General Wilkinson, who turned out to be a real snake, and they brought a charge, a trumped-up charge of treason that I was trying to get those territories severed from the United States and become the head of it. And so... I was arrested and brought as a prisoner to Richmond and put in the penitentiary. And in 1807, they had the trial of the century. And And what was the result of that? I was found not guilty by the jury. And there were other trials. They didn't, Jefferson didn't go up, give up. I was tried on similar associated charges in Chillicothe, Ohio, and in Kentucky and some other places. And every time I was found not guilty. Every time you were found not guilty. And Jefferson just had it out for you, didn't he? Oh, and if I had been found guilty, I would have been hanged by the neck. No question. Incredible. Um, So how did you ever get hooked up with General Wilkinson, who, you know, eventually ended up being a scoundrel? Wilkinson had married into a wealthy Philadelphia family. We all knew each other. It was a very small group of aristocrats, which meant landed and well-educated gentlemen And we all sort of knew each other, and we socialized and went to boarding schools and went to Princeton, and I knew him. We became friends, and he seemed to agree with my need to explore the options of maybe creating another country, a manifest necessity, uh, a manifest destiny out in the West (laughs) in expanding the country. I'm sorry. uh, What was that? Could you repeat that? Did he just say his plan was to possibly create another country after invading Mexico? Well, I wonder what he's going to say when I ask him who would govern that new country. You'll find out in the next episode. Thanks for listening, and don't forget that you make your friends smarter when you tell them about the Calling History Podcast.